Hello and welcome to Video for Justice. My name is Adebayo Okiawu and on today's episode, I sit down with my colleague, Dalila, who is the Associate Legal Advisor at Witness. We have a wide-ranging conversation about the use of video in the pursuit of justice, sharing stories from Mexico to the United States, Syria, Nigeria and beyond. We also share tips on how to maximize the efficacy of cell phone video in documenting abuse. And just as a heads up, today's episode features discussions of police brutality and violence, which some listeners may find unsettling. Now here is the interview and thank you for listening. So Dalila, looking at the global landscape of witnesses' work, can you share an example of a moment when a community used video to demand justice? One of the most inspiring uh, cases that I've come across and that are that I saw my my our fellow colleagues working on is that of the Huba Wahin. Um, it's a community based in Mexico, and they sought to protect their land from two mining companies that wanted to conduct large-scale operations and who were actually given permits by the government to do so without this community's consent. And what was really, uh, um, that was challenged here in this case was the fact that the government claimed that this community, the Hupawahin, uh, was not an indigenous community, in fact, and therefore that their land was essentially up for grabs. And so... What they masterfully did in in uh, partnership with allies, um, in partnership with folks like our colleagues at Witness, is to uh, create a powerful community advocacy campaign that used video that was pushed out on social media, pushed out in their communities. Um, but they also produced and screened another video that was shown at the Mexican Supreme Court. And we always want to think about what do you want to put in your camera frame in order to speak to the evidence or speak to the truth of what happened? And so in this case, in order to prove that they were an, an, an indigenous community, uh, their video uh, contained scenes that included uh, and showed their traditional lifestyle, their farming methods, their native languages, and their customs. And so, and what they also showed was that how this mining operation would destroy their land and indeed their livelihoods. And what happened as a result was a landmark decision that ordered basically, yeah, well, not basically, for the first time that Mexico's uh, Office of Economic Affairs, which is the department that issues these permits, to comply with a constitutional mandate that the community is an indigenous community and therefore needs to be consulted. And what this case goes to show is how important it is to think about whose eyeballs need to be on your video. So ask the question, who makes these decisions? By screening the short documentary video, the Hubawahin were not only able to raise public awareness and gain solidarity, but also get those key actors, which in this case was the nation's highest court, to hear their story to understand their unique connection to the land as well as the rights they sought to protect. That is such a powerful example. And it reminds me of a similar case on the African continent, which also involved witness. It's the Endoroids case. And the Endoroids are an indigenous community, an indigenous group that had their land gazetted by the Kenyan government. <laughs> Uh, 
And so they took the case to the African Commission and it involved the presentation of video evidence. Um, this was a group that is based in Kenya um, and the African Commission is based in the Gambia in West Africa. And Witness, along with some of the local and international NGOs, did support the Endoroy's Welfare Council to take this case before the commission. And they got a landmark decision in their favour that found the Kenyan government guilty. Um, and so it's just important to also know that, especially in this day and age of travel restrictions, when communities may not be able to bring the court into their space to observe the violations that they have endured, video then becomes a very powerful tool to, you know, bring their pain into the courtroom. But then moving away from issues of land defense and environmental rights, Witness also does a lot of work around using video to expose cases of state violence and police brutality. So my question would be, what cases do come to your mind right now that underscore the power of video in this context? Yes. And uh, I mean, we, when we think about the fact that Basically, those who have those of us who have cell phones, we're we're carrying them around in our pockets most of the time, right? And so, you know, we think about you know how easy it is to simply pull out and 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 film, and 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 as a result, we've seen an again, as you said, an increase in in the number of eyewitness and bystander videos that have been that have come out as a result of you know police brutality incidents and and state force incidents. Um, one of the more striking examples um, that I that I remember is that of Kianga Muamba, who was uh, who sh who shot a film based out of Baltimore in 2014, and she was a bystander who was in her car when she witnessed the police beating a handcuffed man, and while she was stopped at a red light, she started filming. Oh yeah, nobody can tell me I can't record. And once the officers uh, saw that she was filming, they forced her out of her car. I mean, it was it was the the behavior was represent reprehensible, but they forced her to the ground. At that point, uh, proceeded to cuss at her. You dumb bitch, you know that. And then claimed she tried to run an officer down with her car. And so while the video was even unclear at times, shaky, you know, because again, Kianga continued to film as, as this was happening to her, um, she also noted that nobody can tell me I can't record. And they ain't ready to tell me I can't record. Which was a powerful statement. Um, unfortunately, she was arrested, and after she was released, she found that the footage from her phone had actually, was gone, so was likely deleted. Um, but fortunately, her daughter was actually pointed out to her mother that her phone had a cloud backup and that, you know, we could access it nonetheless. And what's super striking about this is what very easily could have turned into a, you know, her word against the police's, which we all know is rarely favors the defendants. Um, Kianga's video actually played a really pivotal role in, in actually help, in helping her prove her story and helping her prove her claims. And a great quote from her lawyer was um, in reference to the police. Uh, her lawyer said, they can say whatever they want to say, but you know what? Watch the video. 
So in this case, we see how important it is to have a backup, the importance of having a second or even a third space for footage that you may shoot, either as a bystander or someone who goes out to film, um, that may be stored on devices that could likely be confiscated or even tampered with, either by security forces or otherwise. And this is why we always, if you've seen some of our gifts that we love to create here at Witness, um, we have a three, two, one method, right? So we want to we want to make sure that your item is backed up and stored in multiple different places. Um, and again, the importance of archiving in order to prevent either, again, confiscation tampering, but also simply devices can die, formats can change and go obsolete. Um, and so this is why it's really important to do that as well. And one of the strategies is actually to live stream an incident because that means others are bearing witness with you in real time. And they can also mobilize to come to your rescue should you be in any form of danger. For example, we saw how during the NSAS protests in Nigeria and the presidential elections in Uganda, live streaming was used as a tool to expose injustice and present evidence that could be used to trigger investigations or prosecution. Absolutely. And, and what we also reference in many of our resources is the thought process that you want to think about before hitting that record button or hitting that post button. Um, and as you mentioned, the very powerful live streams that I've seen that came out of the and SARS protests also highlight how important it is to think about, uh, about live streaming and what is in your camera frame as you live stream. Because as we all know, live streams... Um, are being sent out live. They may have a huge audience, they may have a small audience, but once it gets out, unless you end up deleting, you can't really control who sees what or and who could perhaps even capture your live stream as it's happening. And so this is why we always point to um, thinking about who is in your camera frame and what do you really want to capture. So for example, you know, do you really want to put perhaps protesters' uh, lives at risk by having their faces and their bodies or identifying features show up in your live stream. Um, and so sometimes we, we advise people, you might want to consider um, instead of live streaming, live streaming to a smaller private group, perhaps a group of trusted contacts or even journalists that you've been in touch with or versus then simply recording to your phone or your device um, and uploading, uploading later. So even if you weren't live streaming and you have you have it on your phone, you have it on your device, it does not mean that you should just, you know, run home and and click upload. Um, and there's even not only for safety considerations, but for strategic considerations. Um, I always think about the Walter Scott case, also from the United States, which involved uh, a, a, a very brutal um, murder by a police officer of Walter Scott who was fleeing from a police stop and who was shot in the back eight times by said police officer. As the investigation into just why Officer Michael Slager shot at Walter Scott eight times continues, witnesses who saw the confrontation are now coming forward. Now, what had happened was that a an, another bystander, an eyewitness, had pulled out his phone and started filming what happened. And... What the footage shows is that the police officer, after Walter Scott went down and was handcuffed, the police officer went back to the original scene of the stop, 
uh, picked up an object and then placed it ne next to Walter Scott's body. Moments later, the enhanced videotape gives us our best image yet of Officer Slager dropping an object to the ground, curiously close to the victim's body. And after the shooting, the police officer made his report, right? Um, and he claimed that Scott tried to take his taser from him. Which also, by the way, we all know is a tactic that is often used by police to justify not only the use of force, but the use of deadly force, especially in the United States. And, um, and there was another claim, again, in the police report that the police and the responders had tried to uh, administer first aid to Scott. Now, the bystander in this case ended up waiting to, to release his video. Number one, for ethical reasons, and this is why we always say, think about, stop and think. Um, so in this case, the bystander checked in with a trusted contact uh, to see what to do with this footage, which could be uh, could could pose a retaliation action against him. Um, he did contact Walter Scott's family, which is also something we always recommend folks to do because we ultimately want um, either the survivor or their family to to be able to make an informed decision about uh, a video that may have they them or their family members in it. And he also checked with a legal representative before he decided to share the video with the New York Times and then ultimately get released online. And now what the video did here um, is, is and the timing, uh, which was very strategic, strategic, is that it helped the family uh, against these false claims that the police made. So, you know, in this case, the eyewitness video went to prove that uh, Walter Scott did not take that taser from the police or attempted to take that taser from the police officer. And there was no attempt to to administer first aid. So, again, to bring it back, um, there is a uh, oftentimes a strategic value in waiting to see not only ethically, but what happens with what with what state forces may report either in public announcements or on the news, and as, as well as their own official documents, um, versus what an eyewitness or bystander video could show actually happened. So it is important to not only know how to film, but also when to share what has been filmed. Thanks so much, Delina, for being on this episode of Video for Justice podcast series. Thank you all for listening. To find out more about our work, please visit our website at www.witness.org. And to access all our free resources, please go to library.witness.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of Video for Justice. Please consider sharing this with someone else and do follow us on social media at witness underscore Africa. You can also send us an email via africa at witness.org.